please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today will be Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. On the Blue Bibles, it's on page 496. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these home. So once again, Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Thus says God's word. Join me in prayer this morning. Lord, the word says that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God, we thank you that you are not just the Lord of the church or the Lord of the world, but you are Lord of all of our history. From the very formation of Adam, from the dust of the earth, when you breathed into his, into him the living life of God, made him a living soul, till this very moment, this moment that is sometimes attended with with trial and struggle and tribulation and fear and anxiety about the future, Lord, you are still in control. And all of history to this point has worked according to your plan, to your redemptive ordinance, God. And it will continue to do so until it is all consummated to your glory. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the assurance that that gives us. We thank you as we see evidence of that in today's passage. Lord, we thank you that you are with us, that you promised that those who endure to the end would be saved. And that promise, that promise is ours as well, Lord. And we thank you for that. God, we, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear this word, to open our minds to understand it. Open up our spirits to apply it. And Lord, we pray that you would just make us very attentive to your word this morning. God, I pray as I do each week for myself. Lord, I, 
I, as we look into the, the mystery of your redemptive plan, Lord, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to the text, that I would not add to it or take away from it, but, Lord, that I would be faithful to preach it as you gave it to your disciples on the Mount of Olives. And I thank you for that. I just trust you for your empowering, as you told us in the text to do. I trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'm so glad that you're all here today. Um, we're continuing in our series in Mark, and we've reached a, a point in Mark that we're kind of focusing in on for a few weeks. Um, it's called the Olivet Dor- Discourse, and the reason it's called to that called that is because it refers to predictions that Jesus gave to his disciples as they were seated on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. This is the second week we've been talking about this. And as I reminded you, when they were on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is positioned right to the east of Jerusalem. And from Jesus and the disciples' vantage point, they had a great view of this magnificent temple that was the subject of Jesus' talk uh, on the Mount of Olives. It was just right across from the Kidron Valley. They could see the walls. They could see the, 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 the sanctuary of the temple, the, the massive courtyard that was in front of it. The occasion for this conversation that Jesus is now in the middle of with his disciples, it, it was this, that Jesus had made, if you'll recall, a devastating prediction that as he and the other 12 disciples were leaving the temple, you'll recall all the way through Mark 12, the temple was the centerpiece of that activity where Jesus was was speaking to the the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, the, the scribes, and he was, he was declaring an end, especially if you look in Matthew 23, to the end of that system. So when they're leaving the temple, Jesus tells them that not one stone of the temple would be left on top of another that would not be thrown down. He is predicting a violent overthrow, a violent destruction of this temple. Now, we talked about last week how that this would have been as crazy sounding to them as if I said that in 12 months, Lubbock would be no more. It would just be a pile of rubble. They, you, you, would, you would have, uh, you know, if you believed me, you would be as shocked by that as they were by, by Jesus, who they totally believed. Now, the more interesting thing is that these words of Jesus would be fulfilled in one generation. He said that in verse 30. He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. And approximately 37 years later, in AD 70, the Roman general Titus came in. He actually did it about five years earlier in AD 66. This was a long siege of the city, but he placed the city of Jerusalem under siege and eventually completely destroyed the symbol of Israelite greatness, which was this temple that was known to them or believed by them to be the dwelling place of Yahweh. Now, what is happening in this event that Jesus is predicting. All the curses threatened in the Mosaic Law, you can find those in like Deuteronomy 28, would come to pass on the Jewish nation, for the, uh, primarily on its priesthood and on its leaders because of their unfaithfulness to their calling, to the covenant they had with God. And because th- this would all happen, not just because they blew it and God had to, to write up plan B. No, plan B was always plan A. You follow me? Plan B was always what Jesus was getting to. And, and God had provided a better, more lasting covenant for his people that would be based on grace and not on the works of the law. Is anybody in here glad about that? 
Would you rather go back to the law? Would you rather bring your goats and sheep and oxen in here so I could slaughter them for you so that hopefully, hopefully your sins would be covered? No, we don't want that. We want grace. Now, since the disciples did not know this yet, everything that Jesus was doing, they, as soon as they had an opportunity and a little bit of privacy, the four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, asked Jesus two very specific questions. We found those last week in verse 4. They said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? See, they were still hoping, as we've, we've literally talked about this all the way through Mark, now 13 chapters in, they are still hoping for a political Messiah, a military leader Messiah, a, a, a Messiah that was going to come in and give Rome what for. And now he's saying that the temple, where they imagined that he would be enthroned, will now be overthrown. What is going on? So these questions were very important. Now, Jesus answers their two questions with tremendous patience, and more than that, with great specificity. And he tells them four troubling signs will precede this moment of judgment that he's predicted. There will be false Christs and false prophets that will arise. There will be rumors of war and wars, or threats of war and wars that will take place. There will be earthquakes and there will be famines. And all of these things, as we saw last week, happened with dramatic frequency before AD 70. Now, this can leave no doubt that Jesus is God and that he's omniscient and he knew exactly what he was talking about. Amen? He spoke with the accuracy and clarity that is only possible for the divine Son of God. And he proved the reliability and the sufficiency, and the inerrancy of God's word. When God speaks, you can take it to the bank. This is why, just as a sidebar, you should be very cautious, as I said last week, when somebody says, I have a word for you. Because God's word doesn't fail. So if they truly have a word for you, then you can bank on it. But the Bible says, you know how you know a false prophet? Simple. If what they say does not come true, they are a false prophet. So the first eight verses that we looked at last week of Mark 13 deal with widespread signs, wars, famines, earthquakes, things like this. But verses 9 through 13 that we're looking at today predict from Jesus' lips what will happen in these coming decades to the disciples themselves. Jesus uses the second person pronoun, you or your. He uses it literally nine times in today's passage. We're only doing five verses. And he uses it nine times. He's saying, you will, ha- this will happen to you and you will do this and you, and, and, and these things will happen to you. He's speaking directly to the disciples. When we read the word for the word that is written, I don't think we can avoid that conclusion. He's talking to the disciples. So let's look at these signs he predicts and see if, like we did last week, if Jesus' accuracy about what's going to happen in the next 37 years actually holds up. Beginning of verse 9 again. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now, all you have to do 
is on this glorious Lord's Day, go home and read the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and you will see this prediction repeated over and over and over again in its fulfillment. The book of Acts gives us undeniable evidence that all of this took place to the disciples within one generation after Jesus spoke these words. In fact, it didn't take anywhere near a generation. Peter and John had to stand before the Sanhedrin, which would be one of the councils, and were beaten by them for healing a lame man literally right after the day of Pentecost. The day We were always saying, well, I wish Pentecost would come again. Well, do you want the beating that follows Pentecost? Anybody awake this morning? So, right after the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's pulled out, uh, poured out. They speak in tongues. Peter preaches. 3,000 people come to, to, to the Lord. The next day, they go to the temple. They heal this lame man. And guess what? They're arrested and beaten. We also know that Paul, in his previous identity as, the, as Saul of Tarsus, he admitted that he was a persecutor of the church. And he arrested and beat many before he himself was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. What about this thing about standing before kings and governors? Well, later in the book, we see how Paul was standing before King Agrippa and proclaiming the gospel. Later, he would go to Rome, where he would eventually be executed. And he had gone to stand before Nero himself. Now, the Bible doesn't record this, but can we even imagine that Paul would have stood before Nero and not preached the gospel? All of this was fulfilled. Then we move on to verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Well, my question to you, just to consider, and we'll get more into this later, but the gospel must first be preached before what? What's the context? The destruction of the temple. But if our working assumption is that everything we've read in Mark 13 this far concerns things that Jesus was saying would take place within 40 years, how are we to understand This text. Was Jesus saying that the gospel within 40 years would reach far into Eastern Asia or to Southern Africa or even to the Americans? Well, if you're a Mormon, you believe that. But if that's what Jesus was saying, we have a problem because that's clearly did not happen until much later. In fact, it's important to know that even to this day, every people group on the face of the earth is yet to be reached. We've had 2,000 years to do it, and we still have yet to reach every single people group with the gospel. So how do we understand Jesus saying that the gospel must be proclaimed first to all nations. Well, it's important to understand that in the first century, the boundaries of the Roman Empire in the mind of the culture represented the entire world. And that's why when we talk about this time period in history, the early centuries of, 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 of you know, after Christ, we speak of what? The known world. Anybody ever heard that term before? The known world? But but that still creates a problem, doesn't it? Because when we use the term known world and Jesus having said this, does that imply to us that Jesus did not know? Somehow he didn't understand. He knew this would happen in 40 years, but he didn't understand that the farthest reaches of the world somehow existed beyond the Roman Empire. Did he not know that? 
Well, of course he did. That's why in Acts, Acts chapter 1, he speaks of the more inclusive, the end of the world, or the uttermost parts of the world, instead of all nations as he does here. We are still preaching, as I said, the gospel to unreached people in vast corners of the globe where the name of Christ has not yet been proclaimed. But when Jesus speaks of all nations, he's using the Greek word ethnoi, or ethnicities. Now remember, this is important. Because remember, in the Jewish mind, how many ethnicities were there? Somebody help me. I've told you this before. How many ethnicities were there in the Jewish mind? Two. There were Jews, and there were all those garbage people everywhere else called Gentiles. That was it. Two ethnicities. So can we imagine that if there's two ethnicities, that... Jews, the chosen race of Gentiles and the outcasts, the Gentiles that made up the population of the rest of the world, could it be that it's likely that when Jesus spoke of the gospel being proclaimed to all nations, his meaning wasn't every single type of people, every ethnicity, but rather both Jews and Gentiles would hear the gospel before the collapse of the temple. That's a good word. You know why? You know why? Because I suspect that the vast majority of us here are Gentiles. All the Gentiles raise their hand. Okay, I don't see any Jewish brothers or sisters here. So this is good news. Jesus was saying, not only am I ending the temple, not only am I ending the old covenant, but I am going to expand your idea of the kingdom of God to include all nations, all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And that's good news. But this idea of the known world is exactly is what he's clearly concerned with here because we see Paul using the same type of language in his own writings. In Colossians chapter 1, for example, he says, Of this you have heard, you Colossians, have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, now watch this, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. His context for the whole world was the same as Jesus' context for the whole world. Now, so this shouldn't give us any trouble to say that 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 verse 10 was fulfilled in the first century, in my opinion. But what I want you to see is a deeper truth. That living in a world where events that happen on the other side of the world can be reported to us on Twitter within seconds, we find it really hard to be impressed with the fact that the gospel made its way from one capital city in Jerusalem to reach all the way into Western and Southern Asia, throughout Macedonia, and all across Europe in less than 40 years by men on foot without modern technology or modern transportation. And yet we have all those things. And we have difficulty taking the gospel to our next door neighbors or our co-workers. What is wrong with us? Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for, uh, or I'm sorry, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Amen? We should put that on a sign out front, don't y'all think? Come join us. We're hated by all men for Jesus' sake. 
Next, in this next portion, Jesus promises the, his disciples, promise. If I, if I said to you, before I preached this message, I said, tell me a promise of God. He will never leave me or forsake me. He, you know, um, uh, he will, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive all our sins. We always kind of go to those positives. But is this any less of a promise from Jesus to his disciples? That they will be hated by everyone for his name's sake. He promises his disciples that they'll be persecuted and even betrayed by their families. But, when this happens... They also have the promise that they will not be abandoned by him. If you've ever read the classic Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know of the persecution of Christians in the first century. See, in the mind of the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord, not Jesus. And to deny that Caesar was Lord is it was an act of treason that literally signed your own death warrant. You would pay the ultimate price for that. Men and women who refused to bow the knee and pledge allegiance to Caesar because they had met the true Lord of Caesar and the true Lord of every other earthly leader oftentimes paid dearly through Roman lions and Roman stakes. And because of this, It was not uncommon at all for Christians to be turned over to the empire in someone's self-protection interest. So that they wouldn't be in trouble, they turned their friends, their relatives, their associates over to the empire. Even parents... And children would turn each other over to the empire. and And they would watch as their parents or their children were put to death. Jesus said that they would be hated by all. Do you know what that means? That there was no refuge to be found for them in the law. There was no refuge to be found for them, even among those who should have been most interested in their safety, which was their families. But in spite of this horrific reality of the days to come, they were promised that they would have standing by their side an advocate who is better and more effective than any lawyer in Rome. They were promised that the Holy Spirit would speak for them and would speak through them. And this wasn't, don't misunderstand this, when I speak of the Holy Spirit as a lawyer, this wasn't a promise that God was giving them that they would be exonerated, that they'd get off all these, all these charges, that they, that they would just be found scot-free by the, the world's powers. No, it was a promise that, that when they were in the most fearful situation of their life, that they wouldn't waver, they wouldn't feel alone, as they remained faithful to their commission to preach the gospel, because the Holy Spirit would be there empowering them. The book of Acts tells us that Peter and Stephen and Paul, in moments of intense persecution that more than likely none of us will ever experience. That all those men were, in the words of the the Bible, filled with the Holy Spirit as they stood steadfast and faithful under intense persecution. What a promise. Verse 13 caps off our text today and it says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What a great promise that is as well. Jesus further promises salvation to the one who endures in the face of all this madness. But here's the question that we're going to spend the rest of this this message on. 
what does Jesus mean by the end? And the reason that I ask this question directly is because beginning less than 200 years ago, Christians have increasingly imagined that Jesus was talking in these verses about the end of the world as we presently know it, right here in this verse, as well as in verse 7 where he says, the end is not yet. But I want to ask you, we've been doing this for two weeks now, seriously, now, I'm not, I'm not attacking your theological position yet. I'll get there. But, um, I'm kidding. So everybody take a deep breath. Boy, I got hostile in here real fast. I didn't like that at all. I feel really insecure right now. Um, but, but seriously, after talking about this for two weeks, have you seen anything in the context of these 13 verses that would lead us to believe that Jesus is talking about the end of the world that, if you've noticed, still hasn't happened yet. Is there anything in there that would make you think that he's talking about that? This is an important point. Because many, if not most of us, have, have been were first exposed to the doctrines of last things, eschatology, remember that's what that word means, through things like the Left Behind books, the writings of... John Hagee, Hal Lindsey, Jonathan Kahn, people like that. And, and all of these things espouse a sequence of the last days, what, what is coming, what's going to happen, that generally follows this pattern with a few variations from teacher to teacher. First, there'll be a secret rapture of the church followed by seven years of great tribulation. And then the actual second coming of Jesus, followed by a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, which will culminate in the final judgment of the wicked. But what you must understand, even, even if you, if that's your position, I'm not arguing against that yet, but if that's what's your position, you have to understand this. This is an undeniable historical fact. No one, and let me repeat that, No one ever taught that scheme until about 1840. Now, since we judge time by the birth of Christ, that means for 1840 years of the church's history, no one came up with that. Not the apostles, not the patristic fathers, not the medieval Roman Catholic Church, not the reformers, not the Puritans. Not even, you know, no one until a man named John Nelson Darby uh, in Ireland and around between some where between 1832 and 1840 came up. And, and listen, feel free to fact check me on that. Go look it up. I'm pro- I promise you I'm telling you the truth. And because this is true, I think we would do wise to heed the warning of Charles Spurgeon. There is nothing new in theology except that which is false. In the study of eschatology, this new doctrine became known as premillennial dispensationalism. I don't expect you to, write, to remember that. We're not going to put it on a test. That's just what it was called. And much of this doctrine 
this belief about the end times was formulated by a gross misinterpretation of the passage we've been examining along with its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, as well as passages otherwise, other, in other places. And the reason I wanted to point that out to you, that's why we've been going through it so slowly so that you could not lose the contact in the, uh, the context in the drama of the events, earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, that you wouldn't lose the context of what Jesus is talking about here. Now, it's time for audience participation. Somebody quickly tell me, what are the three essentials of real estate? Location, location, location. Can someone take a good guess at the three essentials of proper biblical interpretation? Say it three, yes, say it three times, Jim. Context, context, context. Now, I, I, I said last week, this is fine, and I mean it. You may be here, you, you may be either, you know, don't care, or you may be boiling to, simmering to a boil right now. You may disagree with my conclusions, but I think from what I've show, showed you so far, we have valid reasons to question what has become a very popular view of the end times in recent decades. Was there anything we saw in Jesus' words to give us any reasonable proof that he was talking so far about things that are still future? Help me out. I love audience participation. Have we seen anything that gives us any reasonable proof to believe that? Or do we have solid theological and historical reason to believe he's predicting things that are in our historical past? And this is a very important question to answer when you're, when you're considering the doctrines of eschatology. So to answer that question, we have to consider the, the, uh, the questions that Jesus was answering. First, remember the first question? When will these things be? Now, in light of Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple, do you think that they were talking about that? The destruction of the temple or some distant judgment on the horizon somewhere? We have to consider how the original audience would have heard Jesus' words and what their immediate concerns would have been. Their second question affirms their anxiety about Jesus' words. Jesus, what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? About to be accomplished. They had no desire to be taken by surprise by these coming events. So they quizzed Jesus for some signs so that they could see it coming before it happened. Now, can we imagine that these these men, these four men that Jesus loves, they ask this question and Jesus just blows them off. Just ignores them. Say, yeah, I know that's probably pretty important, this whole destruction of the temple thing. But I would rather just paint a picture of the end of the world for you right now, guys. They say, no, no, no. Can we go back to that temple thing? Let's talk about that. In what we've read so far, it doesn't seem likely. This was, for those disciples, this was an immediate, real-world concern for them. It was not some apocalyptic, Nostradamus-like speculation. It was related to what Jesus had just said. And when you add the fact that every single thing to the finest point that Jesus had told them would precede the destruction of the temple, not the end of the world, had taken place just as he said it would in the same 40-year time frame that he clearly lays out in verse 30. And so envisioning a far-off future event from this text becomes 
much less likely. Now, I think, I'm not a prophet, but I think I can sense some of you getting nervous. Am I standing up here preaching a heretical new doctrine? Am I saying that Jesus isn't returning? Am I saying that he won't judge the world, that he won't reign in future earthly glory? Am I, am I even going so far as to say that the dead won't rise? Take a deep breath. I am absolutely not saying any of those things. I affirm all of those things and I say within the, with, with the church, the historic church throughout the ages, amen, come Lord Jesus. All I am saying, and what I want you to understand about Mark 13, is that this passage does not seem to support what the premillennial dispensationalists claim it supports when we pay really close attention to both the context surrounding the passage and the historical fulfillment confirming that context. There are other verses that clearly indicate that there will be a future physical return of Jesus. Like Hebrews 9.28, which says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Does Jesus have any saints at Northridge Life Church that are eagerly waiting for him? There are other verses that point to his role as judge of the whole earth. Acts 17.31, I actually read a portion of Acts 17 in my prayer preceding this message. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There are verses that assure us that when he returns, it will not be to suffer like the first time he came, but to reign as sovereign over the entire cosmos, having vanquished all his enemies by placing them under his feet. Matthew twenty five thirty one says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There is abundant biblical evidence that the dead, even when you and I are included among the dead, will rise again. Think about it. Jesus comforted Mary with the promise of resurrection at the tomb of Lazarus. He also rebuked the Sadducees about their unbelief concerning the resurrection. And Paul wrote an entire chapter on the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, of that chapter, verse 51 says, Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I cannot wait for that day. And because I believe these wonderful things and can biblically justify all of these beliefs, there's no need for me to now try to shoehorn Mark 13 into an unsustainable premillennial dispensational eschatology. That's a mouthful, isn't it? There is a better way to understand this passage, and it's what I referenced last week. What is the end? Well, the end foreshadowed here is not the end of the world or the cosmos as we know it, but the end of the Old Covenant which gives way to a better, more lasting, more secure covenant. 
One where in spite of myself and in spite of my many sins, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And it is this end, the end of that covenant that I celebrate just as much as I will celebrate the end that will take place when the trumpet of the Lord sounds its mighty blast and when the archangel shouts a cry of final victory declaring the ultimate triumph of the Lamb. I celebrate this end just as much as I will celebrate that end. Because that end would not be possible without this end. When Christ returns in glory, I will finally be free from this body of sin and death, both my soul and my body will for the first time be united in the sole cause of eternal worship as I am set apart in full holiness to glorify God standing in His manifest presence forever. But when Christ put an end we're talking about that end, when he put an end to the old covenant, I was set free from the condemning voice of the law. The law is good. Paul says so in Romans chapter 7, because it depicts for me perfectly the holiness of God. But the way it depicts for me the holiness of God is that it shines a burning spotlight on all of my pollution, all of my corruption, all of my sinfulness. Christ has removed it and silenced that accusing voice by not by ending his law. He said, he said, you know, until the end that not one word of the law passed away. What he's done is he has made me acceptable to God by robing me in his own righteousness. That's why I celebrate the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. Because I don't have to stand spotless. The one, the Bible says that the one who doesn't do all the works of the law will die, will be guilty of the whole law. But I don't worry about that. Because through grace, I have been robed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means when Christ looks on me, he doesn't see me in all my faults and failures and all the stupid things I've done for 51 years. He sees the blood-bought, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why would I want to go back to the old thing? Romans 8.33 describes this beautifully. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. No one can accuse me. No one can bring a charge against me. Because Christ has made me spotless by his righteousness. And therefore the end unto which the twelve were encouraged to endure was not the end of the world. And I don't think in this sense it was even the end of the Jewish age, it was the end of their own selves to the to their very deaths. They knew that if they were called on to make the ultimate sacrifice, and as you know the story, at least 11 of the 12 disciples were called to make that sacrifice. They knew that if they did, that Christ would meet them on the other side with eternal life that he had purchased for them. 
He couldn't be talking about when he said uh, those who endure to the end. He couldn't be talking about the end of the world since none of the apostles were able to endure until that end. Think about that. Not one of them endured till that end. They're all gone. They're all with Christ now. And similarly, similarly, when Jesus said the end is not yet, he was referring to the end of the old covenant. The sacrificial system would literally screech to a halt with the destruction of the temple, making way unimpeded for something far better, of which you and I are the benefactors. Amen? We're done, but I want to read you one last scripture that just sums up the beauty of the new covenant. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Would you stand with me? Father, as I pray this, prayer at the end of this message, God, all I can do is be struck with thankfulness that the new has replaced the old. God, you poured new wine (laughs) into the old wineskin of the sacrificial system and busted it wide open, Lord. And God, you've given us something better, new wine contained in new wineskins by the regeneration of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. We thank you for that, Lord, that you have given us the new, Lord, that we don't have to read these passages and and worry about the future because the future has already been paid for us. It's already been purchased for us. The promises of God are all yes and amen in Christ. God, so it doesn't matter. Ultimately, who is ruling in Washington or Austin or across the ocean, it does not matter because you reign in heaven. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for the new covenant. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who are faithful here, who walk in faith who proclaim your gospel, who let go of worldly concern and embrace heavenly things, God. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are eagerly awaiting the appearance of our King. Thank you, Jesus, for all of these things, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ask our communion helpers to come forward and and to prepare to serve. Um, I just uh, want to, as I do each week, just remind you that these are um, just elements that remind us that the the bread and the cup 
representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, are reminders to us in the seeing, in the tasting, in the handling of these things, that we are the, the benefactors of a brand new covenant. If we weren't, like I said, we'd have a goat or a sheep up here ready to slaughter so that, you know, you could try to keep your conscience clean for another week until you brought your next goat or sheep. But no, no, no. No, we have one great high priest who isn't prevented from remaining in office, Hebrews tells us, because he doesn't need to sacrifice for his own sins. Amen. And so I want you to come and, and as you take these elements, I want you to remember that you are not under an old covenant. You're not fearing what's to come because the victory has already been won and it's progressively moving forward until the day when he reigns. Amen. All right, so come receive these elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This blood, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for how long? Until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now, can you give thanks for the new covenant? Lord, we just thank you once again. Thank you that we're not under the bondage of a law we couldn't keep, Lord, because you kept it for us. Thank you we're not under the condemnation of a righteousness so stained and battered because you gave us your perfect righteousness. And thank you that this is your covenant with us, God. God, that that no one will be able to snatch us from your hand any of that the Father has given you. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. And I want to read you again from the book of Hebrews. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.